Welcome to the Kindling's Muse podcast, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. And now, here's your host, Dick Staub. Well, thank you very much. I'm so glad that you can join us tonight for this edition of uh, the Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. Uh, we look forward to this every month when we get a chance to talk about ideas that matter and books that are important. Uh, this show is uh, taped for podcast in front of a live audience. This is the live audience that I'm looking at at Kane Hall on the campus of University of Washington. Each month, uh, Reverend Earl Palmer chooses a book that every thinking person ought to read. And uh, he begins with some opening comments, followed by a conversation with me. And then we open it up to you for the kinds of questions and comments that you have. And uh, we're looking forward to a great evening tonight. Uh, tonight, our subject is, She Taught Us Well. Dorothy Sayers, a whimsical believer, Christian letters to a post-Christian world. She is perhaps one of the most quoted people uh, on the face of the planet. For instance, one of her great quotes is, Facts are like cows. If you look them in the face long enough, they generally run away. Uh, that's Dorothy Sayers. She's, uh, she's really, really, really interesting. Here's another one of her quotes. How fleeting are all human passions compared with a massive continuity of ducks? <laughs> Ponder this in your hearts and minds, will you? Uh, but we're looking forward to a great conversation about this important book that she wrote, Christian Letters to a Post-Christian World. Here to give us his overview is Reverend Earl Palmer. Will you join me in giving him a big, big round of applause? Well, I, we want to talk about Dorothy Sayers. Uh, you know, she's in a tradition of great women of faith and great women teachers in the history of the Christian church. And we're grateful that uh, the, the Christian family down to the, uh, down to the centuries has produced some really remarkable women who taught. Uh, I think of the, the one is Priscilla in the New Testament, who with her husband, Aquila, in uh, Acts 18... And it's interesting when Paul tells about how they convinced Apollos of who Jesus Christ was. He was a follower of John the Baptist, and they're the ones at Ephesus who convinced him of Jesus Christ. But Paul mentions her name first, Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. They noticed this young man, and they taught him. And so there's a, uh, an amazing teacher of, of the gospel in the, in the, in the New Testament. Uh, down to the centuries, there are so many. I think of our own century, people in my own life, Henrietta Mears at the Hollywood Presbyterian Church, who we all called teacher because she was such an amazing influence on so many, on so many people's lives. In fact, it's true that Billy Graham, when he had his first crusade in Los Angeles, when he became known, uh, the weekend before that, it was, he was at Forest Home, and Henrietta Mears uh, was an inspirational influence in Billy Graham. He pays tribute to that. Henrietta Mears, a great teacher. Uh, Witherell Johnson, who was a friend of mine, uh, missionary with the uh, Overseas Missionary Fellowship, which, you know, the Hudson Taylor ministry, and then she came back to the United States. She was struck with how many lay people, how little lay people knew about the Bible, and she started Bible Study Fellowship, an amazing ministry of Bible teaching from this um, remarkable woman, Wetherill Johnson. 
And then Joy Davidman, who married C.S. Lewis and wrote probably one of the finest commentaries I know of on the Ten Commandments, Smoke on the Mountain. It's one of the ways they met because she wrote that book. Lewis wrote the preface to it. He was so impressed with Joy Davidman, this amazing Jewish Christian who wrote a book about the Ten Commandments. And now tonight, Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was born 1893, uh, and she died in 1957. Uh, that's not a long life, but uh, quite an amazing woman, as you'll see. She was the daughter of a Church of England pastor. Uh, he, he was actually uh, the chaplain at Christ Church College in Oxford during the latter period of his life. And, and Christ Church College in Oxford, along with Magdalen, are two of the most uh, distinguished colleges at Oxford. In fact, because there's a, there's a, can, a canon at the Christ Church Chapel, see all these colleges at Oxford have their own chapels, it's called the Cathedral in Oxford, not the Church of uh, Mary, the, St. Mary the Virgin, which is the university church. That's not the cathedral church. It's Christ Church Chapel because they have a, a canon there. And so he was there, and he and his wife had one daughter, and this daughter was Dorothy Sayers. They were interesting parents because uh, the father uh, taught his, this quite bright young daughter of his to, uh, he was teaching her Latin when she was five, six, and seven years old, and she went to school and excelled. They didn't give her very much street skill, and uh, she didn't have friends to play with a lot. She was isolated, which is maybe a deficit in the parental raising of Dorothy Sayers, which maybe uh, it took a toll in her life later. But then she went to Oxford University, and she holds the distinction of being one of the first eight women, think of this, who broke the 500-year male barrier at Oxford University. It never graduated a male, a female person uh, from Oxford. And in 1915, probably because of World War I, Oxford decided to graduate women uh, from then on, uh, and the first eight one of those eight was Dorothy Sayers, and that was 1915. So she graduated from Oxford with honors in medieval literature. She didn't have a very good chance getting a job. And the sad part of that next period of her life is that she traveled in France and she traveled and went trying to find jobs. She was working as more of a tutor, a tutor in France, and then she uh, got a job in an advertising agency, and she got a job doing uh, minor editing, but she couldn't really land anything of any great success. And she was kind of in a romantic, a hopefully romantic period of her life. She had never been with other schoolgirls and boys growing up. She had been kind of an isolated person, and had very, her social skills were not very, uh, very uh, adept. So she uh, had these infatuations 
uh, that she didn't have enough street skill, enough skill that would come from just having grown up in a school with a lot of kids where you can work things out. So she fell madly in love with one man named Corsino, who uh, she idealized him and she thought he loved her very much and he, made, and he made all kinds of claims of how much he loved her. But he made it very clear that he didn't want to get married and he didn't want to have children. That was a big disappointment because she really wanted to have children, but, but she thought, well, now we'll work it out because he'll love me so much. She was very romantic, uh, and, but it had, a, it had a heartbreaking moment because he at one point said, you know, uh, Dorothy is, is the one I love the most, and I love her so much. She's been really my only first love. But he wasn't referring to Dorothy Sayers. He was referring to a Dorothy in New York City that he was enamored with. And so without any ceremony at all, he simply left her and in the lurch and went to New York City to the other Dorothy. Uh, it, it, her parents were quite disappointed because her mother saw this is going to be a great catch because they, they thought he was a duke or something. He wasn't really. Uh, he was a little bit under false flags. But at any rate... Uh, the mother said to Dorothy, you know, you must be grieving very much over this. And the humor of Dorothy did show itself there at that point. And she said, grieving? No, I'm not. He didn't even send me a postcard. I think that's one of the great lines of Dorothy Sayers. It's a little bit like that dust line. He didn't even send me a postcard. I'm not going to grieve him anymore. So then she took up with a motorcyclist who was a car repairman. And... Uh, he uh, was, she became infatuated with him. And it was, again, then, she, but she discovered that he loved to dance and he loved to go out and party and she was swept into that world for a while. Uh, but he didn't want children and he didn't want really marriage. He just wanted an arrangement. And uh, that was disappointing, and especially when she got pregnant because of that relationship. And then when she realized that he didn't want to uh, uh, have children and didn't want to be a, a husband, uh, she then, uh, then she did the unceremonious thing. She just left him behind. And uh, uh, in that pregnancy, carried, carried the pregnancy all the way, uh, bore a son named uh, uh, John Anthony. And, uh, but she was, didn't know what to do. She's, uh, she's virtually unemployed, uh, except, uh, well, not, she's not unemployed at that point, but this is now, she's 30 years old when she gives birth to this little boy, and uh, she's so embarrassed about it that she can't tell her parents or anyone, but she has a, a cousin named Ivy, and this good woman who lived in Oxford, and, and had a kind of a a ministry and a work, because she was very poor, but she raised children, orphan children. And so John uh, Anthony was put in with the orphan children, and uh, then uh, to all of Dorothy Sayre's friends, because she was living away from Oxford, he was her nephew, her beloved nephew. And that's when he would come and be brought to her and play with her and all. And, or she'd go to Oxford and see him. She was seeing this beloved nephew. And, but he then, after age two, called her mother because she was his mother. And, 
and it, it did have a happy ending because he turned out to be a fine young man. But she uh, uh, never, uh, uh, never married that motorcyclist. Later, she married another man who uh, uh, then adopted this boy, so he got the other man's name, Fleming. But that man was not much to brag about either. But in this case, she just took care of him for the rest of his life. And so he had been wounded in World War I, so she, took, uh, she had a lot of conscience and took care of him. But that's not what you'd call a very successful domestic life. And now I have to give you that picture because that's Dorothy Sayers in her 20s. And then when she's 30, she gets pregnant with this little boy. But at the same time, now she's virtually penniless. Uh, she just doesn't have money. Her, her parents have some money, of course, but she's uh, just got these little jobs of editing, and she decides to write a story. And she writes this story, and uh, here's what she said when she said it, when she sent it to a uh, she wrote to a friend. I have written a silly book, but I don't suppose any publisher will take it. And the book was Whose Body. Well, it was her first of a series of extremely successful novels. She became almost immediately wealthy and, and successful. Uh, so that's the other part of her life. The domestic possibilities, the romantic period was a really failure. And now, age 30, in 1923, she writes her first detective story. And about the same time, uh, Dorothy Sayers is uh, uh, becoming a Christian. Because now here she's a, a daughter of a clergyman, but she is rebellious against uh, her life as the daughter of this fairly prominent clergyman. And the thing that did it for her, and I'll read her own quotation. Uh, the thing that did it was being baptized against one's will is not nearly so harmful as being confirmed against one's will. <laughs> and that because her father and mother wanted her confirmed in Salisbury Cathedral. It would be very dramatic and there would be a lot of people there and it would be quite impressive. And you, you'll be so impressed by the service. And so they didn't ask her if she believed they just assume, of course, she's the daughter of this uh, famous clergyman. She obviously believes. And so they, in a, in a way, just programmed her as a young girl into that confirmation. And Dorothy Sayers was infuriated by it. So let's read what she says. She says, being baptized against your will, is that's all right, because you're an infant. You have a right. That's a, the parents praying for you, uh, you know, and, and committing you to the Lord and asking God to protect you. That's okay. No, no argument against that. But being baptized against your will is not nearly as harmful as being confirmed against one's will, which is what happened to me and gave me a resentment against religion, which lasted a long time. Ooh, and then she even has a theological comment to make about this later, and that is that the cultivation of religious emotion without philosophic basis is thoroughly pernicious in my opinion. She says things the way she feels. She's very outspoken. And she was rebellious after that 
forced con uh, confirmation where she was, and the, the, the family thought it was so marvelous, it was so glorious, the service was, imagine, in the Salisbury Cathedral, Pete should be so thrilled, but she didn't even believe, and yet she's going through a confirmation because her parents have, have structured it for her, so she becomes rebellious. You know what rescued her and helped her to become a Christian? You'd say, here's the picture now of a person on their way toward atheism, on their way toward non-belief or toward angry non-belief. But what happened was she made a discovery of one of our heroes, G.K. Chesterton. The same Chesterton who Lewis met when he was in the hospital bed in France during World War I. Probably the same book. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, wrote it in 1909, telling about how he became a Christian. It's an amazing book. And Dorothy read it to listen to what she says about in Discovery, G.K. Chesterton. Had it not been for the vigorous example of G.K. Chesterton, uh, she said, I wouldn't have become a believer, probably. And because uh, he saw the history of Christendom as, and now here's a quotation of, of uh, Dorothy Sayers, he saw the, the history of Christendom as one whirling adventure in which the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages, the dull heresies sprawl, sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling but erect. And that's a Chester, actually that's a Chesterton quote from uh, from. Uh, uh, Orthodoxy, where he's talking about how the Christian faith is like a tiger that's roaring through and leaving the heresies prostrate, and it's reeling because it's in battle, but it's erect. And that one, Dorothy Sayers, really, she credits uh, G.K. Chesterton as playing a key role in turning her toward faith. Now, I want to point something out that I think uh, is very important to understand. Uh, uh, Dorothy Sayre. Uh, in 1923, she's now embarked on writing uh, these uh, detective stories. She failed in all her romances in life, you might say, and, and, has a, and is, an, an, is a, a, a mother w without a husband and a little baby to, to show that that was not exactly the way you'd plan it, perfect romantic domestic journey. So she starts writing novels, and the way the one biographer puts it in, when she started writing her stories, and she wrote about 20-some of them, uh, Lord Peter Whimsey entered her life. She created the perfect man, the perfect romantic man, and many people feel that Dorothy Sayers is working out what she didn't get in the 20s. Uh, with that failures, but what she got, she created in a story. She creates Peter Whimsey. And by the way, this is the name she gave Peter Whimsey, uh, who's, who's introduced first in Whose Body. Peter Whimsey's name is Lord Peter Death Breeden Whimsey. He puts, she puts the word death into his name. She loves to surprise you with all kinds of little surprises. So it's Lord Peter Death Breden Whimsy, second son of the Duke of Denver. Yet can't make him too great. 
at the minute. Make it second, not the first son. Second son of the Duke of Denver, but terribly, terribly rich, terribly successful, terribly smart, terribly witty, terribly handsome, perfect, and also a great sleuth. But she also creates Harriet Vane, and that's Dorothy Sayers. Harriet Vane, if you read all the, the, those wonderful stories, especially when you get to Gaudy Night, the, her most famous novel would be The Last One, Gaudy Night, in which Peter, uh, Lord Peter Whimsy, uh, only Lord Whimsy only comes in two-thirds of the way through the story, and it's really Harriet Vane who solves the mystery. And Peter just agrees with her solutions, and he falls in love with her and marries her, as you know if you've read all the Peter, Peter Whimsy stories. But she became famous writing these stories. And American uh, movies made movies of, of those stories. Uh, BBC made a whole set of movies from these stories. And uh, the sto story sold with, uh, uh, with great success. In the midst of this, she became a Christian. And uh, she decided she didn't want to keep writing any more of the detective stories, so she drew them to a close. And then she gave her energy to defending the faith. Now, here's the part you've got to see. Dorothy Sayers is basically uh, uh, a re uh, in rebellion in these early periods. Now she becomes a defender of faith in rebellion. But what's she in rebellion against? It, it, not, it, she's a rebellious Christian. But what kind of rebellion does she have? It's not the rebellion that we would expect Oh, we'd say, oh, yeah, she's going to become a wild, off-the-wall Christian. No, it's just the other kind of rebellion. She became totally enamored with the creed, with the creed, with the centeredness of Christian faith. And her rebellion now is against shallow Christianity, meaningless Christianity, non-thinking atheism. <laughs> she loved to take on the atheists for the non-thinking ones. She would... Like she didn't like George Bernard Shaw because she called him a non-thinking atheist. She loved atheists, and she loved to take them on when they were thinking. But so she became rebellious against shallow Christianity or uh, what she called post-Christianity, where you save all, you have all the, the outward forms of Christian faith. It's almost like you're reading Bonhoeffer's uh, in his writings in the same period, 1930s, when he wrote Cost of Discipleship. He is defending the gospel against cheap grace. And notice how Bonhoeffer defined cheap grace. It's the grace we confer on ourselves. When we teach redemption as a general truth, just applied uh, with no, no cost of discipleship. She has Though she doesn't, uh, she's not necessarily aware of Bonhoeffer writing the Cross of Discipleship, but she's in a, on a different, uh, in a different uh, world at that point. But she is in the same in the same place. She is just rebellious against uh, uh, what she would call slipshod, challenging uh, 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 Christianity, and but still she's very into detective stories. And uh, this is a kind of an interesting thing you'll get a kick out of. 
she became the head of the detection club. That's why P.D. James writes the introduction to practically every one of the, the Dorothy Sayers books. P.D. James, who's a great detective writer, was uh, totally enamored with, with Dorothy Sayers, loved her dearly. Uh, but the detection club was founded by another detective story writer. And do you know who that was? G.K. Chesterton, who wrote the Father Brown, Brown, Brown detective stories. And so he founded a detection club. And Dorothy, he was the first chairman of the detection club. Dorothy Sayers became the second chairman of the detection club. And I've got to read you this because you get a kick out of this. Uh, the detection club had monthly meetings, and detective story writers in England came to those meetings. And here's an example of the meeting. Silence having been called by an usher, the president will ask the secretary, what mean these lights, these ceremonies, and this reminder of our mortality? And then later in the ceremony, the candidate being initiated is asked this by the president. Do you promise that your detectives shall well and truly detect the crimes presented to them using those wits which it may please you to bestow upon them and not placing reliance upon nor making use of divine revelation, feminine intuition, mumbo-jumbo, jiggery-pokery, coincidence or act of God. So you can't have any crimes that are caused by that. You've got to figure out what causes the crimes. And then you answer, I do. Then the, She took this very seriously, by the way. And then the president, do you solemnly swear never to conceal a vital clue from the reader? I do. And then the president, do you promise to observe a seemly moderation in the use of gangs, conspiracies, death rays, Ghosts, hypnotism, trapdoors, Chinamen, supercriminals, and lunatics. And do you utterly and forever forswear mysterious poisons unknown to science? And then the answer, I do. And then finally the president, in declaring the new member elected, utters the following dread warning. If you fail to keep your promises... May other writers anticipate your plots. May your publisher do you down in, the contract, in your contracts. May total strangers sue you for libel. May your pages swarm with misprints and your sales continually diminish. Amen. And that was a good example of the humor of Dorothy Sayers and Chesterton. But that was the, the pledge that all the... P.D. James and all these detective writers took when they were in the detection club of Dorothy Sayers. And there's a hilarious picture in this book of Dorothy Sayers sitting uh, with, with the skeleton. They had a, a skull with a little light bulb inside the skull that she would hold when the ceremony was underway. And there's a picture of that in here. You can look at it afterward. Dorothy Sayers had a very imposing presence in that detection club. But then, as, as a Christian, she decides that she wants to really throw herself in the, now we're in the 30s, she throws herself into, uh, into sharing the faith. And, uh, and so in sharing the faith, she uh, begins to write uh, an amazing set of books. And the one that I want to draw your attention to appears in the book uh, uh, 
post, post, post-Christian letters to a, Christian letters to a post-Christian uh, age. And that, that uh, uh, piece is probably one of her most famous theological pieces. The greatest drama ever staged is the official creed of Christendom. She was focused on the creed. It's interesting. For her, that would be the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. What is at the center of Christian faith? She doesn't want it explained away. She wants it understood. And she thinks that is the dramatic part of Christianity. So listen to what she, how she puts it. The drama is summarized quite clearly in the creeds of the church. And if, you, and if we think it dull or because it, it is because we either have never really read those amazing documents or we've recited them so often and so mechanically as to have lost all sense of their meaning. The plot pivots on a single character and the whole action of the answer to a single central problem. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Before we adopt any of the unofficial solutions, some of which are indeed excessively dull, see, her rebellion now is against dull explanations of who Christ is. And she, uh, before we dismiss Christ as a myth, and here are the dull ones, or an idealist, or a demagogue, or a liar, or a lunatic, it will do no harm to find out what the creeds actually say about him. What does the church really think about Jesus Christ? And then she goes to the creeds to find, it, find out. I'll just read a couple of more of these marvelous sections where she says, uh, she narrates uh, aspects of, of our Lord's ministry, and then she said, he was emphatically not a dull man in his human life. And if he was God, there can be nothing dull about God either. But he had a daily beauty in his life that made us ugly. The the officialdom felt that the established order of things could be more secure without him. So they did away with him. They did away with God in the name of peace. The third day he rose again. See, she's going through the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. She's gone through all of this, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell, and he really dies. And now the third day he rose again from the dead. On the third day he rose again. What are we to make of that? One thing is certain. If he was God and nothing else, his immortality means nothing to us. If he was man and no more, his death is no more important than yours or mine. But if he really was both God and man, which is what the creed says, without confusion, God and man, then when the man Jesus died, God died too. She's the first to, to, to really understand the death of God. What happened at Mount Calvary is Jesus Christ absorbed death. He took it. So there is a real death there. So Dorothy Sayers, that's the creed. And so listen to the way she puts it. So that then God died too. And when, God, and, and when the God Jesus rose from the dead, man rose too. Because he lives, we shall live also. Because they were one and the same person. The church binds us to no theory about the exact composition of Christ's resurrection body. See, it doesn't say that. 
It's just, he, he is, it's a actual resurrection. And nobody is compelled to believe a single word of this remarkable story. God, says the church, has created us perfectly free to disbelieve in him as much as we choose. If we do disbelieve, then he and we must take the consequences in a world ruled by cause and effect. Now, we may call this doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. That God should, listen to these lines, this is, the, this is vintage uh, Dorothy Sayers now, listen. That God should play the tyrant over man is a dismal story of unrelieved oppression. That man should play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. Any journalist hearing it for the first time would recognize it as news, and those who did hear it for the first time actually called it news, and good news at that, though we are apt to forget that the word gospel never met, ever met anything so sensational. So now that's this amazing uh, article she wrote called the greatest drama ever staged. But that's not all. She also wrote The Man Born to be King. She, by the way, she was very much, uh, very much enraged by uh, what happened in Germany during the 30s. And uh, it's very interesting uh, how, uh, how that troubled her. And... Uh, and I have, I have a, a, a quotation where she, uh, uh, where she mentions that, that alarm she had. Uh, well, I, I can't find that quotation right now. But she, where she uh, saw it as the, the German Third Reich making a god of their own national tribe, their own tribal deity. And she saw that as... Uh, an intolerable idolatry. And so she was terribly troubled about that. And so during the, when the war came, she was, uh, she was very patriotic and wanted to do things like Lewis did. She wanted to do things that would help uh, uh, the British uh, people and to uh, encourage their spirits. And the BBC asked her to write a, a radio play and so she wrote a, a, an amazing radio play on the person of Jesus Christ called The Man Born to be King. And uh, that, she wrote it in ordinary English language. And the, many of the people that spoke, spoke in Cockney. And so a lot of people made fun of it at first. And, and some people thought it was irreverent because she was, it was so earthy. But it was a remarkable uh, celebration of who Jesus Christ is, and it was a great success in England. And so she had uh, that role that she played. And then she wrote The Mind of the Maker uh, uh, about how we are, we are meant to be creative too, and we are meant to have uh, a role to play. And, and, and she saw it that not that we're divine, but that God has enabled us and has given us, he's given power to us to, uh, uh, 
make a difference in the world. And so she wrote, the, wrote that piece. And so uh, uh, throughout all these, this period of the 30s, she's had the period of writing her stories. And, and by the way, she increasingly in the stories makes uh, Peter Whimsey more and more philosophical. He gives more and more speeches about the meaning of ethics and the meaning of life. Uh, she gets that, to, and also to uh, Harriet Vane, but especially to Peter Whimsey. So she plays that role in her stories. But these marvelous uh, articles she wrote where she uh, shares her faith and uh, uh, dares to share it very dramatically. And then uh, now in the 40s and 50s, uh, through the influence of Charles Williams, uh, who is a great friend of C.S. Lewis's, and, and the, that, that is another large part of her life. Charles Williams introduces her to Dante and says, you've got to read Dante if you think Milton is great. And she said, I struggled through C.S. Lewis's book on Milton, and I'm trying to understand that. But uh, Charles Williams said, ah, but if you read Dante, who lived in the 1300s, that much greater than, than Milton's paradise. Uh, uh, loss or, or the, uh, search for paradise. And so she read the Dante uh, Paradiso, the Dante Inferno, and she was completely taken by it. And so she decides, mind you, now she's in the m most mature period of her life, toward the end of her life, she decides that she's going to master the Italian language well enough to translate Dante. And the Penguin translation of Dante's Inferno is Dorothy Sayers' translation. So she does that because she just felt it was such a key witness to Christian faith that she wanted. And so she does that toward the end of her life. And then uh, in 1957, she dies. But it was an amazing mixture of gifts that she gave us and uh, for which we're the richer. Very interesting. We're going to get back with more uh, with Earl Palmer right after this. And in a few minutes, we'll get to our audience's questions. This is Dick Staub. You're listening to Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. We'll be right back. Well, this is Dick Staub back with you. Tonight, we're talking about Dorothy Sayers. A whimsical believer, uh, Christian letters to a post-Christian world, we've also had an amazing overview of her life and uh, a bit of her biography. I'm, I'm interested in her feminism and in the, you know, one of eight grad, the first eight graduates for 500 years and, uh, and what you said about her kind of uh, having a, an unsuccessful domestic life but a very successful uh, professional life. One of the th things she said in Gaudy Night, one of her characters was, wherever you find a great man, you will find a great mother or a great wife standing behind him. Or so they used to say. It would be interesting to know how many great women have had great fathers and husbands behind them, which is kind of an interesting question. How would, do you perceive that she would see the direction that uh, the role of women has, has taken in Christianity? Uh, since you know the 1950s, when when she lived, what would be some of the things that she's would be very positive about? What would be some things that you might think she might be concerned about? 
Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a book that I, I didn't bring it with me, but it's an easy book to get, is Are Women Human? Are you, uh, are you all aware that she wrote that book? It's a little book, and it was given, it's a series of lectures she gave, Are Women Human? And you know, it's interesting, in that book, she, uh, remember, she is a rebel. She rebels against feminism. She says, I don't want feminism, I want women to be seen as human, and men to be seen as human. I don't want to uh, emphasize masculinity. I don't want, even though in that earlier period, I told you, she went to that enamored, uh, almost uh, uh, infatuation period with these uh, guys that she was uh, uh, imagining would be marvelous. And, and she does do it with Peter Wimsey. She creates, so she creates this perfect man, but then he needs a woman that is able to win him and he, her, and she, him, and so that's Harriet Vane. So he, but she does that in the imaginary world. But in the, Are Women Human, she, uh, she comes out in, in that marvelous article on the fact that she wants, uh, she wants uh, women to be seen as human, therefore all the gifts they've got they should use. And she wants men. And she has even a funny story in that book, in that little speech where she says, if a man can cook better than... I don't like to say a woman's place is in the home. I, her place is where her gifts are. And she should do where she can use her gifts. And a man should do what his gifts are. And if he's better in the home, then he should be in the home and be cooking and stuff. But in other words, it's do what you're good at. And... I, I kind of think that is really the biblical doctrine of spiritual gifts. That we're, uh, and, and to quench the spirit would be to quench those gifts. And that's, that's a sad moment that happens when the Christian church did not make use of women as teachers. And, you know, I've done a whole thing on that here, so I'm not going to repeat that. But we, remember, we did St. Paul and women in the church as one of our one of our kindling muses, and we made a very interesting point that what has contaminated in the church a lot of Christian thinking is that we were too influenced by the priesthood model of ministry. And that priesthood model of ministry comes out of the Levitical priesthood and the, the, uh, the priestly tradition. And both Eastern and Western churches, both Orthodoxy and Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic, our parents and our uncles and aunts, both bought into that priestly role of ministry. But uh, I believe the case is clearly made in the New Testament that the New Testament church does not launch itself that way. Uh, it's true that later the, the church does buy into this priestly. But as I, I agree with Luther, the priestly role and when he used the phrase priesthood of all believers, the priestly role is the role of praying for and lifting up people and praying for them, not as, your, not as an intermediary. You don't, they, Jesus Christ is the intermediary, but we can pray for people and lift them up, and that's priestly. But the teaching ministry of the church is prophetic, and the prophets in the Old and New Testament are both men and women. And when Peter starts his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he doesn't start with a priestly model. But Peter, who is the head of the church, in a way, he starts out by saying from Joel, your young men and your young women will prophesy. And that's what you see happening here today. 
we are foretelling the implications of the reign of Christ, and that's the role of teaching. Women and men do it together, and uh, do it, and they should do it together, and they should do it uh, as they have giftedness, and the church agrees with that giftedness, and they should do it. And that's, uh, I think, that's where Dorothy Sayers at, and she does that also in her. Uh, the wonderful things she taught on work. Uh, she had a, a whole number of speeches she gave on work, again, which are a little bit like this, the mind of the maker, uh, uh, that we are to do the gift that we've been given and then go for it. One of the things that was clear about Dorothy Sayers was that she took seriously the intellect as part of the Christian calling and craft uh, as a writer. Uh, she said, nothing about a book is so unmistakable and so irreplaceable as the stamp of the cultured mind. I don't care what the story is about or what may be the momentary craze for books that appear to have been hammered out by the village blacksmith in a state of intoxication. But the minute you get the easy touch of the real craftsman with centuries of civilization behind him, you get literature. And, you know, I was thinking about that as it relates to your comment early on about Chesterton. He, he cast this long shadow, as did George MacDonald in a different way with his imaginative literature. But they were both craftsmen. They did what they did very well, and they were both intellects, you know, to be, forces to be contended with. And, you know, years later, they influenced Dorothy Sayers, C.S. Lewis. You see the, the inklings. And, and the, this is a long ramp up to... I'm kind of curious uh, if you think about today's younger generation, who they will be looking for uh, to find that Christian that is both craftsman-like in their work and, and brings intellect to their work. And, and it's interesting to me because my observations for a lot of students, it's going back to the Inklings, it's going back to, to British writers uh, that came out of British Christianity instead of out of American Christianity. Who are we producing today that would inspire a young person or a Dorothy Sayers to be attracted to the faith because of the intellectual uh, rigor that they take and the way they write and, and write well? Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to start naming names, but I do think uh, we even notice it in, in storytelling uh, uh, and in movies and stories when a when a movie or a story comes and and it has integrity in the way it develops plot, you know, like Dorothy Sayers was just adamant that if you mentioned a poison, because she had a lot of people killed by poisons, it had to be accurate. The poison, and notice that came in the detection club too, had to be accurate. It not, don't uh, just fake it. Do research, and she did research on poisons. If you're going to have poisons in her in her novels, but it, it, there's a sense of integrity, and you see it in a, in, a, in in movies and films where the story unfolds and it makes sense and it holds together and it it has intellectual uh, st it stimulates you intellectually with the heart as well as the head, and I think Dorothy Sayers is is great for that. I, I like her stories for that reason, too. I think the reason I asked the question is I'm, were the Kindlings started as an homage to the Inklings. Uh, our organization was influenced by a conversation I heard in England when uh, Anthony Flew, the world's leading atheist, 
had just announced that he was a theist. And I happened to be in Oxford a few months later, and Gary Habermas, a friend of mine, interviewed him. And he asked uh, Flew if he had ever met C.S. Lewis. And Anthony Flew said, oh, we used to, as students, sit as close as we could at the burden baby to the inklings just to overhear their conversation. And I thought about this young student who's somewhat attracted to this intellectual repartee and also ribald repartee. Those guys could get pretty, you know, pretty, pretty earthy. But, um, and, I, and I, I really wonder where that tradition is in American Christian life. I mean, the cultured mind. The, I mean, it's, certainly there's pockets of it, but um, I think it's something we all ought to be concerned about. Uh, the the uh, dumbing down of American life and the dumbing down of American Christian life uh, is something that we've got to be concerned about. Well, you've talked about Dorothy Sayers as a rebellious Christian and her, um, her approach to the greatest drama ever staged and her writing uh, that took on shallow Christianity uh, and non-thinking Christianity. Um, where would you uh, think she might be looking today? What kinds of things would she be writing about and concerned about today as it relates to the kind of Christianity and the, 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 you know, what the role the creeds play and don't play? I mean, one of the things she said is, I believe it to be a grave mistake to present Christianity as something charming and popular with no offense in it. Yeah. And certainly she would see a lot of that in American Christianity. You know, kind of easy breezy. Yeah, well, I, I was intrigued with the fact that in, in, in one of her books is, is Creed or Chaos. But again, Creed is the word she uses. And she means literally the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, those ancient creeds that are totally centered. They're centered creeds. The three articles center on Article 2. Uh, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. The, the second article is so critical. Third article uh, comes to enlighten the second and uh, make, to en enable the second to become ours so that the resurrection then becomes my resurrection. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the ministry of God, the Father, Creator, who makes it possible for us to have minds. And, may, and she was very big on that. God, by his decision, uh, when he creates us, makes the decision that grants us freedom. Uh, some people say, how can you have freedom if God is sovereign? Ah, I have no problem with that. One of the sovereign decisions God made provides for our freedom, provides for us to be thinkers, for us to be creators too. And that's the way she, she handles it that way, too. And, uh, and that's the creed. And, she, and so, in a way, it made her very rebellious to say, uh, what are you going to say that's going to be relevant? Well, I'm going to focus on this ancient creed and then try to make it contemporary. And you'll notice she used contemporary language to make it uh, real for us. And by the way, my hero, Karl Barth, did the same thing after World War II. When World War II was over, he had, you know, he had been at University of Bonn, 
And then when the, uh, after the, he was one of the writers of the Barman Declaration, so since he had dual citizenship, then it's both Swiss and German, he was kicked out of Germany. He went over to Switzerland where he finished his entire career. But when the war was over, Bonn, his university, where he had been kicked out of, wanted him to come and give lectures. And it's interesting to me that in 1945, right after the war, the, the, the Bonn University was really in, in rubble, but he met with students, and what did he decide to speak on? The Apostles' Creed. And he gave his great series of lectures on the Apostles' Creed, dogmatics and outline. And, and that's, the, that, that's the adventure. Dorothy Sayers is in the same, in the same place. And she, so in a way, she took the oldest truth, uh, the one that, was, that had been agreed on first. It's not been uh, redacted or uh, uh, deconstructed. It, she takes the oldest uh, document, and that became what she focused on completely, and, and that's why I said she was a rebel, but a rebel in a way that we didn't expect. She took that, and that's why she calls that the creed, which I just did those readings from, where she said, uh, that's the most dramatic story. And, I, and, and then she made it, made it contemporary. And she, in Man Born to be King, oh, by the way, here's a little interesting uh, uh, sidelight. When she did Man Born to be King, uh, the director of that production at BBC was Val Gilgud, the brother of John Gilgud, a famous actor, and he did it with Dorothy Sayer. And she was very, very strict that nothing be changed. Well, when they started doing some of the first episodes, uh, the, a whole group of Scottish Presbyterians, this doesn't make us Presbyterians look too good, felt that it was irreverent and it was not proper because the English was irreverent, uh, because they used uh, some cockney phrases, and because it's ordinary people that are, that are in this, in experiencing this story, the life of Christ. And they wrote to BBC and wanted it toned down, or they wanted it changed, and there, there's footage in the BBC records of where they, they thought about it for a while and took it to their uh, governance committee, but they, uh, they ran up against Gilgud and Dorothy Sayers. They said, no, you can't change a word. And they didn't change a word. But it's funny that it was, some of the Christians were complaining about the earthiness of what Dorothy Sayers had written, but yet, what it was all over, they, uh, it, it received amazing accolades uh, throughout Christendom because it was so good, but hmm. it, it, it had that problem at the beginning. It's interesting because Bart and Dorothy Sayers discovered at the end of World War II that orthodoxy was the great rebellion. To yes. be orthodox. And I think that's where we are today. And by the way, Bart had great respect for Dorothy Sayers. He mentions Dorothy Sayers a huh. number of times. We're going to be back with more of Earl Palmer uh, at Kindling's Muse and we're going to take our audience's questions coming up right after this. Don't go away. Well, welcome back. This is Dick Staub. You're listening to Kinling's Muse, Earl Palmer Ministries at the Kinling's Muse. And we're going to get right to our questions tonight about, um, I almost said Agatha Christie because somebody, <laughs> somebody was asking about Agatha Christie. Uh, well, let's get started right over here with your question. 
Do you see parallels with St. Paul's strong personality and advocating for Jesus with the conviction as Dorothy did for the creeds? The conviction of Dorothy for what? For the creeds. Oh, yes. Uh, because the greatness of the creeds is that they focus on the man at the center, Jesus Christ, and will not in any way diminish him. They'll keep the scandal alive, fully God, fully man, who suffers. And notice the Apostles' Creed even overplays it because the, the Gnostic movement in the second century tried to immediately take the scandal away by saying that he didn't die, he only appeared to die. And that is a very, that sounds so respectful. Uh, and it was ba based on the Gnostic idea that, that Jesus is really more like a phantom and that he is too great to die and certainly not the death of humiliation. So he only appeared to die. And, uh, but notice the creed. The creed will not budge. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Oh, by the way, Dorothy Sayers has a great line in Man Born to be King. Remember that Pontius Pilate was standing there and uh, his wife, the uh, servant came and said, your wife has, uh, sends word to you to have nothing to do with this man because she has had a bad dream about him. And she put this in the man born to be king. And then uh, uh, what, what's the bad dream? She dreamt that if you are careful, down through the ages people will say, suffered under Pontius Pilate. <laughs> that was the bad dream Pilate's wife had. They will say, suffered under Pontius Pilate. But that was a historical figure. In other words, he died in history, not in a phantom sense. But notice, then it goes on, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, well, that should do it, dead, that should do it, buried, that should do it, descended into the place of death, hell, Hades, into the place of death. The third day in history, uh, death could not hold him. But notice, it's very earthy, very definite, and that's the creed, and that's St. Paul. You notice Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 has almost the same sort of language. It's very definite, very concrete, and very anti-Gnostic because the Gnostic uh, glorification of, of Christ is you diminish him by glorifying. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, remember in uh, King Theoden is being diminished by Wormtongue, his prime minister, who is protecting him and protecting him from battle. Uh, but we know that when King Theoden goes to battle, he does die, but he's trying to protect him from that. And uh, Tolkien saw that too, that glorification of the king uh, making sure that there are all kinds of people eating his food so that he won't get poisoned, uh, and then they die. That's okay, but we're trying to protect the king. And, but that didn't happen to Jesus Christ. He, he really died, and the creed insists on that, and Dorothy Sayers loved it. St. Paul loved it, too. Keep the scandal alive. I like it. Uh, Virginia, what's your question? Feminism today is in some way out of control, and giving feminism a bad name. Feminism is equality for all, and I was taught that in psychology in the last 15 years. Is this a necessary step in changing society, this form of rebellion, much like Dor Dorothy Sayers? 
So do we need feminism to be out of control in order to get attention? Yeah. Uh, but you know, the, the rebellion's got to make sense. And it's got to be uh, the rebellion. I use the word rebel because but notice in her rebellion against uh, confirmation, it's not without meaning. She says, what I'm saying is you should not have emotion and uh, ceremony for a youngster without meaning. She says, I call that very pernicious. There should be meaning. And so that's, a, that's the kind of rebellion. But it's a rebellion that is not anti-intellectual rebellion. Or it's not a rebellion that is uh, hate-mongering rebellion. It's rebellion against bad thinking. So then we've got to have uh, right thinking. And, uh, and, and sometimes you do have to go cross-grain. But do it with style. And do it, you know, in a way that is, um, that people don't just uh, cut it off. And that, there's where Dorothy Sayers is pretty shrewd. Uh, in her stories, uh, you don't cut Peter Whimsey off, and yet he gets a chance to make some speeches uh, that uh, appeal to truth. And, and, uh, and, and then, of course, when she gets to uh, these marvelous, uh, her Christian pieces, they're, they're witty, and they're rebellious in a way against the, the current time, but they're not irrational, you know? So they're, they're a, it's a rational kind of rebellion. Hmm. Uh, Burrow, what's your question? In the, the man to be born, sorry, in the man born to be king, Dorothy Sayers uses everyday language. I find it interesting that Dante did the same, writing in the vernacular. What do you think is the power to this earthiness, or the other side of it? What's the secret that's lost in using a drier, more abstract language? Yeah, you know it's very interesting. Dorothy Sayers. I didn't read you one quote of where she is bragging about Dante, but listen to what she says. In other words, she just finished Dante. Much to her surprise, that her strongest impressions were excitement about the story and admiration at Dante's skill in keeping the excitement going. This was the last thing she had expected. Noble poetry, yes. Grim imagery, yes. But swift storytelling, suspense, tenderness, even humor in the midst of the horror, she didn't expect that. And that's why when she saw that in Dante, she says, I've got to translate this because people aren't reading it. And, uh, and she was so struck with the fact that he was able to keep the story going and able to make it so you could, an ordinary person could follow it. And he has this Beatrice character and all, uh, which is a grace character in the middle of it all. And so it's, it, it's, it preaches the gospel too. So she just found herself in love with that 13, or it's a 1300s is when Dante wrote. That's a pretty old piece. Hmm. Terry, your question. Terry, your question. Earl, you, you mentioned uh, that Sayers did some good writing on work. And I really love the chapter in this book called Why Work? Yeah, Why Work, right. Why, why Work. And uh, she actually concluded the chapter with these words. If work is to find its right place in the world, it is the duty of the church to see to it that the work serves God and the worker serves the work. 
In your opinion, what does this mean for the church to carry out this duty? In other words, how does the church help us serve God through our work? And I wish I'd have read this 40 years ago. <laughs> you know, because we don't always feel that. You know, that's not our mission. But how, how does the church, what is the church's role, as Dorothy says, or duty? Yes. She, she doesn't like the spiritualization where she'll say, I'm doing this for the Lord. No, do it for the work. The work should have so much meaning that you can do it. The work deserves to be done. A doctor doing a good job in medicine, a teacher doing a good job in teaching, a coach doing a good job in coaching. Do it for that, and then uh, thank God. But don't say, don't make it religious too soon. But that's, again, that's a Dorothy Sayers distinctive. Don't too quickly uh, take away the, uh, the sweat of the work for its own sake. And she was big on that. I want you to do good work because the work deserves to be done well for its own sake. And that's part of the mind of the maker. God made it that way. And so uh, rather than to say, I'm doing this for the sake of people, or I'm doing it, he said, don't say that. Let them say it. Uh, I'm doing it you know, so that poor people will realize how much I love them. No, no, let them say it. You just do the work as well as you can. Yeah, she was, uh, that was another one of her uh, uh, kind of pithy way of saying everything. Pete, what's your question? My question is, what do you feel is Dorothy's greatest contribution to Christianity? What is her most serious contribution? Mm-hmm. Greatest contribution. For Dorothy Sayers? Uh, yeah, uh, okay. Um... Uh, I think at a time when, uh, in the 1930s, when we were slipping into a kind of tribalism in the world, she uh, was non-tribal, and uh, like her whole views on the, not being feminist for the sake of feminine, but human for the sake of being human, and so that we're in the human family. So we don't think of ourselves first as an Arab or a Jew or a Gentile or think of myself as an American or think of myself first that way, but to see myself uh, as, uh, uh, as human. And she made that point strong. In fact, I found the quote where she was so outraged at Germany, and, I, and so I'll read that, where she... Uh, I, I found that quote. I had it in my book, but I didn't have it. Germany has committed the final unforgivable sin, the sin against the Holy Ghost. Her rulers had chosen to see evil as good and good as evil. They had deliberately cut out of their philosophy all respect for the individual human soul. And that's what... Again, that's what tribalism does. Tribalism can say, you know, the German Third Reich had created the idea that we're a super race, and therefore other people are by, they're just simply inferior. And that, that then justifies all kinds of, uh, and we're seeing so much tribalism today. And I think Dorothy saw that, and that was written in the middle of the 30s. That wasn't written just in, in the time of, uh, this is when everybody was enamored with Germany. You've got to realize that England, after the, uh, the German Olympics in 1936, 
uh, English people became very enamored with how efficient Germany was. But Dorothy Sayers was not enamored. And, and she, she saw the, these danger signs. And, uh, and I admire her for that. But anyway, uh, her gift, her greatest gift was, uh, well, one is a baptized imagination. I, I give her credit for that, too. Like Lewis had a baptized imagination, so did uh, J.R. Tolkien. And they, it shows you the importance of imagination and how it can praise God. Uh, but do good work, and then we'll say it pleases uh, us and pleases the Lord, too. If, if the message comes through. Yeah, I think that was a gift she gave. She was a complex human being. And yet, everybody who knew her, uh, they, they, um, they, they felt uh, challenged and blessed by her. Uh, her, her uh, challenged gifts. and blessed. That sounds like a, something a pastor would say about a pesky sheep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm challenged and blessed by your presence in our church. Well, I... <laughs> no, but you know, the word bless means to find the right road. And yeah. if someone blesses you, they, they help you find the right road. Absolutely. That is ashar. That is the Hebrew word for bless. Here's, a, here's three final quotes from Dorothy Sayers on truth. Even idiots occasionally speak the truth accidentally. She was asked, do you find it easy to get drunk on words? And she said, so easy that to tell you the truth, I am seldom perfectly sober. <laughs> and then the final is the great advantage about telling the truth is that nobody ever believes it, which is why orthodoxy is the greatest rebellion and scandal because it's, it's truth and uh, people don't always want to hear the truth. Well, I'll tell you. This is a person that you want to spend more time with, and you can uh, read any number of her books. Also, this biography, uh, if you're wondering, the one that Earl was quoting from, uh, is uh, the forward is by P.D. James. James Brabazon is the, uh, is the author of Dorothy Sayers' uh, biography. Uh, by the way, this man that wrote this biography, it's, it's a very tender biography. He was in her... Uh, one of the last ministries Dorothy Sayer had before she died was that she was in her church, in her Anglican church in London, St. Anne's. She had a group of young uh, men and women who were actors. She was very much given to uh, encouraging them in their faith. And this, uh, he, this guy ended up being the head of, of the drama department at BBC. And he uh, pays tribute to her because it was in that little prayer group. It was a prayer group uh, for actors that Dorothy Sayers, that was her last sort of ministry before she died, was with actors. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'll look forward to seeing you again next month. And for those of you listening by podcast, you can always tune in to uh, more podcasts at thekindlings.com. This is Dick Staub, your host. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Have a good evening.